1: Hello everybody, welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian God. Studies, I'm Sean Gillery. In this episode I spoke with Barbara Engel about her book, Breaking the Ties that Bound, The Politics of Marital Strife in Late Imperial Russia. Barbara Engel is a Distinguished Professor Emerita in the History Department at the University of Colorado. She specializes in Russian and Soviet history, with a particular focus on the social history of women. Her works include Mothers and Daughters, Women of the Intelligentsia in 19th Century Russia, Between the Fields and the City, Women, Work, and Family in Russia, and Women in Russia, 1700-2000. For more, here's my interview with Barbara Engel. Hi, Barbara.
0: Hi, Sean.
1: Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Uh, Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Breaking the Ties That Bound, The Politics of Marital Strife in Late Imperial Russia. Uh, Just to start out, uh, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself and why you wrote a book about marital strife in Tsarist Russia? Okay.
0: Um, As some of the people who listen to this might know, I have made a career of writing about the lives of women in imperial and Soviet Russia um, and have been doing it for a very long time. And about 20 years ago, and I've published books about revolutionary women, I have uh, published books about peasant women and their um, incorporation into urban life um, and more. And and finishing the book, the major research project before this one, um, I st- stumbled with the help of an archivist at what was then uh, Central State Historical Archive into a cache of really remarkable documents. And what that cache did was enable me in the book Between the Fields in the City, Women Work and Family in Russia, to give women's voices, um, to add women's voices to what had been largely a portrait based on statistics as I, tra- I traced the transformation in women's experience uh, from village to city. And the reason that this, um, this cache of documents enabled me to do that is because it tracked um, the breakdown of marriages among a wide variety of social strata, um, including, rather to my surprise, the peasantry. So I came into contact with this, this archive this archival collection, back in 1991 or 1992. And I remember making a mental note to myself, you have got to come back to this. This is the basis for a book. And indeed, it became the basis of a book, but not for another almost 18 years. Uh, It took a long time for me to get, get that work researched and even more to write it.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the sources because they are so fascinating and they do allow you to capture the voices of your subjects very, very clearly and well and end, end in a, with a lot of lively, uh, livelihood. Um, you know, your main source pool is from the Imperial Chancellery for the receipt of petitions. What is this body and, and what does it have to do with marriage?
0: Um, in Tsarist Russia, divorce was exceedingly difficult and expensive to obtain. Uh, It was under the purview of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, and most of the people who did um, successfully apply for divorce were people with resources and privilege, and there weren't very many of them. Um, So it, it was not easy to escape an unhappy marriage through divorce. Um, nor was it possible as it was, for example, in the United States to simply move away and pick up elsewhere because Russia had an internal passport system, which which, which, incorporated into its purview just about everybody, um, although some more privileged groups had an easier time obtaining a passport than did women. And this was an internal passport system. It wasn't an external passport system. Uh, so if a person wanted to move oh, roughly 30 miles from their ascribed place of habitation, they needed um, the permission of a superior authority if they belonged to a member of a group that that lacked certain legal privileges. All married women um, had to obtain permission from their husbands to obtain the passport they needed to live and work elsewhere. And what this meant, essentially, was that Separ- marital separation, unless both parties agreed to it, was exceedingly difficult. And it's, this, it's in this realm that the chancery comes in. Um, the chancellery essentially um, was empowered to circumscribe imperial law that required husbands to and wives to cohabit. The law did require husbands and wives to cohabit. And it gave that law patriarchal teeth, as I put it in the book. Uh, by giving husbands the power to deny their wives a passport. So if a woman could make a compelling case to the imperial chancery for receipt of petitions, the chancery Chancery could do it and run around the passport law and grant a woman the right to a passport that would enable her to live separately from her husband over his objections. Um, This is not a divorce. It is simply the right to um, live apart from the husband, and so um, so that so the that's the function of the chancery in this particular case. It had a myriad of other functions, but in my in for my for my purposes, this was its importance.
1: Mm-hmm. And and what about the files themselves? What do they contain? Um, is it in addition to a petition from a from a woman, um, or I would also imagine also husbands? But what 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 is in a file when you, when you?
0: Most, most about over ninety percent of petitions originated with women. If a husband did not want to live with his wife, he simply left. He had the right to his own passport. So it's really women who are the ones who are penalized by the passport laws. Although there were some petitions from men, um, very unusual, and um, and mostly um, on behalf of daughters um, rather than themselves. Um, a woman so it's the, the the process begins by uh the by the penning of a petition and sending it to the chancery, which either had to be written by the woman herself or if she was illiterate as a surprising minority of women petitioners were uh it could be written by somebody else, and she would say that these are my words and leave a thumbprint or something like that a stamp an x whatever. So it would begin with a with a with a petition quite formulaic in content, really, um, describing her sufferings, describing her husband 's misdeeds, and throwing herself at the feet of the Czar, pleading for his mercy. Um, these petitions often l- listed witnesses to be queried in the case, and they pre- and they generally elicited a kind of counter petition from the husband protesting protesting this and um, saying why he wasn't guilty of all the things his wife said he was, and and then if this turned out to be, as it often was the case, uh, not an easy case to resolve, an investigation was in- initiated in which authorities sent down essentially a list of questions to local officials who proceeded to investigate the case and generate, in some cases, five or ten pages of evidence. In some cases, hundreds of pages of evidence that might include, for example, uh, property documents in, in, if, 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 if the couple were wealthy. It might, it, they might include letters purloined by husband or wife that casts the other party in a very negative light, um, and uh, just a range of other documents um, that were generated for, for very different purposes originally, but which became grist for the mill. Of these uh, cases, so some of them are very slender. Um, some of them are incredibly rich. And one of the interesting things about the cases uh, is that because they're they're not legal cases. In fact, in fact, uh, lawyers are, are are barred by law from participating in this process. Although you can see the lawyers hand nonetheless sometimes, um, because it's an extra legal process. Nobody was really sure. Beyond certain very basic issues, what exactly would convince the Chancery either to grant a woman her passport, or in the case of a husband, um, convince the Chancery that the woman shouldn't have a passport? So the so the the materials, the allegations, the narratives, the tropes that appear in these files are extraordinarily diverse. And I have to say, just picking up on this for a minute, that one of the incredible difficulties of this project for me. And why it took me so darn long to do, because I didn't know what I was looking for. And so I would read these 50, 60, 100 page files and I would literally take notes on every word or almost every word. I would translate them into English and take notes. It took me forever to figure out what what was important there, because they were all like they were like snowflakes. No two were alike.
1: Well wow, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it was very very hard. I mean, I, if you looked at my my notes from the first few years, you would just be aghast. Or sometimes I would miss things that would be important. Once I um I I reordered a file by accident that I had read when I was first starting and had dismissed as unimportant and it turned out to be um the file that that from which I take the narrative that begins and ends the first chapter. And I completely overlooked its significance. Yeah, I think we've all done
1: that once or twice.
0: (laughs) So it took me forever. I mean, literally forever. I mean, I had whole chapters that never made it into this book to figure out what was really important, what was at stake here, um, and the the rest of it.
1: I, I have to say it's quite surprising that they're that diverse because one would think that given various... Public conventions, you know, you deal with with these kind of uh, literary literary sources, but also um, uh, newspaper sources and discussions of marriage. These kind of like almost advice pamphlets of sorts. It, it's surprising that there wasn't a, a couple of main tropes that or narratives that that women would use. Uh, just based on popular conceptions of marriage and what makes a bad marriage or what makes a bad husband and what makes a good wife, um, I'm surprised that there aren't, they, they, or are they there?
0: Well, uh, well, you're absolutely right, Sean. And it, it speaks to my weaknesses as a researcher, because what I did is I, I plunged into the documents long before I started reading around in the cultural artifacts that were necessary to understand them. Um, And and I'm not sure that was a mistake, really, because it because when I was reading, started reading the advice literature in the newspapers, it alerted me. I I, having read the files, I now knew the kinds of things that were being picked up, because even the prescriptive literature is remarkably diverse so that so that the documents and the larger cultural context began to work together after a while. But the first few years, no. And even even even. um, even towards the end, uh, when I was dealing especially with with laboring classes uh which is something I knew a lot about because my last book had been about them, even there, um I had really enormous difficulty identifying. Where the where the where the tropes and the um, themes really lay. It was it's surprising, but I wanted to keep myself. Partly it was because I was trying to keep myself open. I did not want to
1: prejudge what I found. Um, now this book is is very much about Russian women striving for some kind of selfhood or autonomy. Um, one may even make an argument of, of some kind of subjectivity, but not in the Foucauldian sense, of kind of sense of self and, and self worth. Um, How does marital strife shed light on this effort or this struggle?
0: that's a very good question. And I I have to say, when I began this project, that's not how I conceived it. Um, But as I began to, again, work back and forth between the documents and the larger cultural context, rather to my surprise, I saw the way that themes in the larger culture that empowered Um, or or tended to women's selfhood and subjectivity were shaping the ways that not only that women presented themselves both in their um, original petitions and and their follow-up life narratives, but also in private documents and in the ways that others besides the women responded to the substance of cases. So I could see in the 30-year period that I cover. Uh, the ways that language changed very subtly, but very interestingly, um, and the way women picked up um, sort of tropes and and um, themes from the larger culture and incorporated them into their into their own stories. I mean, one of the things that that really struck me as I stood back from the book towards the end is the extent to which um, the 1860s which was a time of new attention to selfhood and subjectivity um, as a consequence of the emancipation of the serfs, how this new attention to selfhood and subjectivity, which was really part of liberal and leftist discourse in this period, um, became sort of mainstream as part part of, of, of what happens in the society in the in the decades that follow, so that what had become what was originally kind of a pushing at um, the patriarchal culture of serfdom became, in the it towards the end of the decade, part of the ways that a far broader strata of individuals are uh, conceived of themselves and their own
1: possibilities. Mm-hmm. Now, this raises kind of two questions for me. The first one is a class question. Do you find this? Uh attempt to find autonomy or selfhood or establish express it one should say both in more middle class circles broadly defined and working class circles do you find a similar trend in each And my second question is where would you situate your book then in the history of Russian feminism?
0: okay let's do one question at a time I'm old enough now that I'll forget the second question by the time I get a third of the way through the first um, <laughs> for privileged women, um, the, for, there's a real social difference. I mean, one of the very interesting things about about my about my um, the, these these petitioners is that that women across the social spectrum complain about much the same thing: marital violence, um, extortion of money, drunken husbands, abandonment. But the ways that they conceive themselves and the way they deal with the situation. Very much depends on their social status. Uh, for I would say that for women of privilege and education, and the line is not so easy to draw. It's not so straightforward. But by and large, women of privilege and education were the more likely to incorporate um, not um, conceptions of the self drawn from prescriptive literature and, and probably from fiction too, although that's harder to to uh, to account for because the fiction is so abundant. Uh, but so they're the ones who who are who are more likely to incorporate for example um the language of um, of rights of some kind um into their into their narratives. working class women poorer women are much much more likely um, to speak about the need to work, the need to support their children. Um, the need to protect their income from their husbands' depredations, they, they, their sense of rights is, if it, or, or, or their own subjectivity, is much closer to the bone, as it were. Does that make sense? Yeah, it
1: makes sense. I mean, it, it kind of it to restate it to, for my own understanding: for, for lower class women, it's, it's more dealing with their everyday life situations, like the need to work because you have to make a living or you have to support the family. Whereas for, say, more middle class women, the, the sense of autonomy is more in the abstract. It's, it's, it sounds like it's more rooted in an idea of self. And dignity. And dignity, right. Yeah, I think dignity is a place throughout this, your book, in, in many interesting ways. The fact that I deserve dignity is is one assertion of that that sense of selfhood.
0: Right. And let me actually add here um, that one of the really interesting things that I found was that, um, I mean, that that the right not to be beaten, the right not to be beaten um, for a lower class woman was an act to feel that I, I, I should not be beaten is an act of considerable self-assertion of which I suspect only a minority of labouring class women were capable. I and mean, wh- one of the things that needs to be underscored here is that these petitions come, these are not typical marriages, not necessarily because of the abuses they describe, but rather because of the assertiveness of the women to take, who take action to defend themselves in these circumstances.
1: Now for that second question, how do you situate this book in the history of Russian feminism?
0: Well, the history of Russian feminism is by and large, a history of an intellectual movement activists. Um, this book, can you, can you hear me because my screen has just gone blank. Okay. Then I'll let my blank screen stay blank. Um, the so the history of feminism is basically an intellectual history. Um, it, it, it impinges on my book because it's clear that some of the ideas um, that feminists propounded um, trickle down. It is clear that some of the educational institutions that feminists fought for um, provide a level of sophistication for a portion of my female population um, that feminist organizations, including the society to, um, to, it, uh, to defend the rights of women, I think it is in Russian, um, intervenes on behalf of several of my narrators who are otherwise in hopeless situations. Uh, but the discourse, the, the, it's interesting that the idea that women have rights as such makes an appearance very rarely in such a bold form In my documents, it's more diffuse. It's there, but it's more diffuse. And it's hard to know, frankly, whether which comes first, the chicken or the egg, whether whether the feminist movement picks up um, steam and um, converts as it does in the early 20th century um, because of. um, Oh, gosh, let me think. Where was I going with this? Because women have now begun to think more of themselves, or whether the a more widespread alertness to the rights of human beings, which shows so up so much in my data, also informs the women's movement. If this, am I making myself clear? Yes, you are. Okay. I've never thought about this before, but it's so, it, it runs parallel to the history of feminism with interesting, but I think with interesting intersections that would be worth exploring more fully than, in fact, I do in the book or have up to now.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I would also add that you have an interesting role for the, for the men who are evaluating these cases yes. and the shifts yes. in, in concepts of marriage and also to some extent women's rights or women's dignity.
0: You know, one of the points that Laura Engelstein makes in Keys to Happiness is that because of the partly subject position of, to use a broad liberal professional man, they tend to identify much more fully with women than their counterparts in the West do, up till 1905, when the situation changes quite dramatically. Um, I think that much of what I find in my book um, it illustrates that point very fully. Um, And and probably the the place where that illustration comes out more fully and richly is my discussion of domestic violence, where, in contrast to the West, where the campaigns against domestic violence are led by women, in Russia they're led by men, mainly, and mainly lawyers and jurists and uh, people who hope to bring the law more deeply into family life, in some senses to empower themselves, as well as because... Um, they have a great deal of sympathy for the oppressed lot of women.
1: But I think it's important to mention that your 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 men in the chancellery aren't really liberals in this sense, or oh. or, or would you? <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no, they're not. No, you're quite. I actually, I'm not even thinking about the Chancellor here. I'm thinking about um i I'm, I'm 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 thinking about the um the campaign to um, expand the the campaign I discussed, I think it's in chapter three, to expand the power of the courts to intervene to protect abused women. Um, The chancery's officials are another kettle of fish entirely, you're quite
1: right. Now, let's get get into some of the substantive issues you you deal with. Now, um, you argue that that the ideas about marriage are changing in the late 19th century um, from one where you have arranged and even involuntary marriages to more uh, based on parental authority, uh, to one where you have more marriage based on affection. Um, how do you explain this shift and, and how does this idea of marrying out of affection contribute to a, 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 a selfhood for women?
0: First, I actually don't know if more marriages are based on affection. Because, I, because you remember, I'm only dealing with a very, very small sample, and I have no idea how typical they are. What I found. To, to my again this was the one of my most surprising findings that uh, that a substantial minority of my women petitioners most but not all of privileged birth were including in their accounts of their own travails the fact that they had not married by affection or by their own volition and I was really stunned by that um because um because When I had read about marriage in other places, including France, where most marriages are arranged, um, such allegations don't seem to have appeared in appeals for separation or divorce. So I I was really curious about it. And so I traced it back to um, a growing emphasis again in the prescriptive literature, again in popular culture, On um, on The the process begins actually at the end of the 18th century with the Enlightenment, but it's really in the mid-19th century, again in connection with the new emphasis on the rights of the individual and the rights of selfhood, uh, came a much greater concern with um, honoring the feelings of the women and men in a married couple. So, Whether this eventuated in more 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 love marriages, I haven't a clue. uh, What it certainly led to was a sense that marriages that were not made on the basis of love were less likely to succeed and more likely to be unhappy. Making marriage by one not by one's own volition a kind of compelling, you know, the compelling. Um, appeal, not to chancellery officials who could have cared less, uh, but to witnesses and others talking about a case. And so it's part of that larger concern with subjectivity. And of course, there's nothing really more intimate involved in subjectivity than one's intimate and sexual life. And so forced marriage becomes, if if you're honoring a person's subjectivity and selfhood, then forced marriage becomes a a really egregious violation of that very selfhood. And so um and so it I think it 's connected to that. Um, it played itself out um very, very much in prescriptive literature uh, which which spoke largely, although not entirely of the love marriage as if it were the new norm um, i think I think again, it was far less likely um, among the lower classes um, marriage by by one 's own volition was much, much less common. Um, parental arrangement of marriage, I think, continued right up until the end of the, 20, the 19th century. Um, there was, a, a, as far as I can tell from secondary sources and related sources, um, they, such marriages were now. Um, maintained less by parent to parent than by making sure that young people socialized in appropriate circles, so that if they met a guy and, and or a man met a, a, a gal and and they were attracted to one another, you could be pretty sure that that you that the the marriage wouldn't be objectionable to the older generation. So there's a there's a loosening up of courtship that can be traced in the documents, but. But in terms of the love marriage being the norm, I don't know.:
1: but I, I would also assume, because because marriage is a, a property relationship to a large extent, that then I wonder if you get if you have an allowance for more marriages based on affection, or at least a, 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 not more, but a tolerance. Um, um,
0: you, you see it first among those classes for which marriage is not a property arrangement, professionals, um, men and women. Who make their living with their heads and not through the marketplace, and and also the nobility. Um, which I mean, if you t- there's a joke in in Anna Karenina about um, I think it's Kitty's parents are, are very upset because you can't you can't arrange marriages anymore. But it's but it's really unclear how are you got a daughter supposed to get married. Um, and I think so, And this was and it's said, of course, right after the emancipation of the serfs. So. I mean, I think people were talking about this. It was, an, it was a matter of social concern. Um, for the lower classes, I think it depends. I mean, if, if, if a couple worked, um, there's really very little property involved. So the, the property aspect of marriage is chiefly uh, important by the late 19th century for uh, merchants and people who engage in commerce, for which the property transfers of marriage are absolutely key to the success of a business
1: mm-hmm. did you I, this might be out of the scope of your book um, but and I, I don't remember if there was a particular discussion but the, do you I my assumption is is that if you have a marriage is based on affection that the courtship rituals the response might be a, a more inflexible courtship rituals that you have more controlled spaces for young men and w- young women to interact therefore parents, may not be able to, say, arrange a marriage, or it might be frowned upon. Um, But they supplement that through other mechanisms of of control.
0: Well, let me say that a young woman could not legally, a a woman whose parents were alive, could not marry without their permission, period. Um, A man, what?
1: (laughs) I said, well, that's a method of control.
0: Yeah. A man, um, I forget. I forget. I mean, forced marriage or arranged marriage are less common for men, but they certainly happen, Um, especially again among the artisanal craftsmen and merchant classes um, and peasantry. Um, For the peasantry, um, the fathers have a lot of control over their sons because of the way that property worked among the peasantry. A man couldn't go off and have his own farm, for example. So, fathers could exert a great deal of control over sons ditto for the merchantry uh because um because most sons continue to work for their fathers in a merchant household until pretty late. so the degree of i mean it' really is men who earn their own living who are in a position to go out and find a woman and 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 choose her. Um, and it is generally the man who does the choosing. And then it's up to the woman to decide whether she wants to be chosen. And, and, and if she does want to be chosen, then of course, it's up to her parents to, choose, to decide whether um, they will allow her to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the issue of, of property a bit, because you, your story is, has a lot of contradictions concerning men, women's rights. And it's clear because of these contradictions, the, the chancellery decisions included class considerations, uh, and here I'm speaking particularly about you, women's right to own property, though women had the right to own property. In practice, family tended to trump property law in marital disputes. And then at the same time, we have a reinterpretation of the law in the favor of working class and peasant women concerning domestic abuse. Uh, so, talk about these two issues of property on the one hand, and then well, talk about the property on the one hand, then I'll ask you about the domestic abuse when you're when you're finished.
0: First, uh, first of all, the, the property the property issue is a very interesting one. Alone among um, European nations in this period, Russian Russian law does not require married women to give up her right to property. Women could and did inherit property, manage property, buy and sell property, um, have full ownership rights over property, even after marriage. And that's a very important distinction between Russia and Europe. What, I, what my book shows um, is that although women did have these legal rights, faced with the... So that's, so that's in the sphere of... I mean, Russia has different sections of law, and so that makes this more complicated. So this is property law, but there's also family law, different kind of law, and family law... Um, gives a husband unlimited power over his wife and enables him to command her presence in her home, his home, and deny her the right to move freely by withholding the passport. And what I I suggest in my chapter is that because of the way that family law law essentially trumped property law uh, because um, it deprived women of the opportunities to exercise their legal rights uh, because of men's subordinate power. Um, and when these issues came to the to the courts, as they do, uh, the courts often decide that property law trumps marital law. I mean, I'm sorry, marital law trumps property law. That is to say, for example, that if a woman owns the house where the couple is living, and the husband abuses her, extorts money from her, comes home drunk, brings home his lover into the household, whatever, she can't kick him out because she has to obey him. So in that case, family law trumps property law. And it does so for a whole range of reasons that I think I won't reenumerate now, but it, it does in, in in more subtle ways as well because of the ways that it's difficult for women to exercise their property rights in an increasingly complicated marketplace so that's that's the but that's primarily women of privilege uh, poor women also have property rights I mean they can th- their their furniture might be their own their dresses might be their own um, uh, their their tiny dowries are their own uh, but if if a husband uses his authority to take them, they're pretty helpless
1: to do anything about it. Yeah, there's also the phenomenon you talk about. You refer to repeatedly the mercenary marriage. Yes, <laughs> which I, I was look actually just looking for the cart. You have wonderful cartoons from um, from a various uh, uh, this uh, s- satirist uh, magazine, um, and I was trying to find the one where uh, a woman says something like, "You know, you took all of my money," and the, the husband says, "No, I didn't take it." I didn't get anything; it all went to my creditors, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or something like this. You, have, I'm, I'm so ha- glad that you reproduced a lot of these because they're, they're really, really nice. I, yeah, they. I had
0: so much fun finding them. I bet. <laughs>
1: um, now, what about so? There's a, there's, there's that attitude in terms of property law, but, but when it comes to domestic abuse, you see the, the, the officials in the chancery actually um, ruling more and more in favor of women in domestic abuse cases. Uh, How do you explain this shift?
0: Okay, well, we're now, let me say first that we're now talking about a different social strata. Most of the cases that are strictly domestic abuse involve working class and peasant women. Um, And and I wanna treat, I wanna, it, it is involved with upper class women too, but there's a real difference in the way that the chancellor treated wife abuse in those particular cases. For upper class women, um, domestic violence um, represented, always represented, in the eyes of very paternalistic chancellor officials, it, it always represented a violation of, women's, of, of privileged women's dignity. Um, in the case of lower class women, again, and, and actually for those of listeners, if there's ever a listener who doesn't know anything about Russian history, let me say that when I'm talking, a little caveat here, when I'm talking about classes, the term is a little bit rough for Russia, which was a state society in which the lines between social groups uh, were written into law which differentiated people according to their rights and obligations in relation to the state. So to talk about class, as I'm doing now and really do in the book, is a very tricky business and I try to be careful about it. Let me say here that the line between the way, the, the line determining whether from the beginning abuse was abusive, was 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 at the boundary between women who enjoyed privilege and those who did not enjoy privilege. And, and that word, privileged and unprivileged, is not my invention. It is a line that you see in imperial documents. So it's very, very interesting. Anyway, so when I talk about unprivileged people, I'm pr- talking primarily about uh, peasant women and townspeople, people who were subject to different passport laws, people who, played a di- who were subject to a different tax system, people who had different obligations in to the state, people who... Um, who generally didn't have a whole lot of money, too. For these unprivileged women, um, in the early years of the chancellery's operation, the need to maintain social order almost always trumped a woman's right not to be physically abused. That is to say, chancellery officials were were unconcerned, remarkably unconcerned, uh, with abuse of women 's bodies um, and and this is evident in um, in in their willingness, for example to deny a passport to a woman who was grossly abused if she had engaged in some kind of improper behavior um, even e- 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 even if her husband had behaved egregiously or if, if in the view of chancellery officials um, she had caused him to treat her badly and, and again and again and again you see in the documents she was beaten without cause or she was or she, she you know she asked for it so so they 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 were unwilling to um to recognize women's right to physical and violent ability because more important to them Was the fact that the male responsibility of making sure that potentially unruly women did not disturb public life was being properly performed? That's a bad sentence. Shall I try again? (laughs) It's up to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me let me try it again. It's it's almost Germanic in its complexity. Um, They were if 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 they were concerned, men are supposed to 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 discipline their wives. And if it seemed to officials that the violence came in the course of appropriate marital discipline, they would not act to separate the couple. They would not satisfy a woman's appeal for mercy, even if um, the discipline was sometimes quite egregious. In the course of the 20th, sometime around the mid 90s, this begins to change. And you see on the part of officials a greater willingness If you will to cut women some slack um to um to to release women from their husband's authority um in cases of violence and to refer to violence to marital violence as 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 something in in lower class cases as something that's inappropriate so we see uh, so i guess if we would if i were going to make a general statement about the trend, we would see a greater respect even for lower class women's subjectivity, selfhood, and bodies. Physical inviolability.
1: Now that of course is connected to another issue and that is masculinity. Um, and, and in the changes about marriage towards the end of the 19th century, um, a lot of these seem to be concerned with curbing or at least disciplining masculinity. Um so how did for example, did the, the changing attitudes about women's working outside the home and the cult of domesticity attempt to redefine russian masculinity um let
0: me let me omit from your question women working outside the home because i actually don't think it does um what what i think to to make a to make a broader point um and really to to make a broader i think one of the things you see in the course of the 19th century is a greater willingness to curb arbitrary masculine authority in private life, not in public life, and certainly not at the top of the political sphere, but in private life. Um, in, in for, for what I would call, again, loosely the middle classes, you can see this trend in advice literature. Uh, where, um, where the cult of domesticity, as much as it does elsewhere, um, by enhancing uh, the role that women play at home, um, raising women's status, as it were, uh, brings a corresponding diminution of masculine authority because it, 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 and a greater, although not perfect, mutuality. And so you can see this in the advice literature, in which uh, men are urged to curb their temper, um, to treat their wife kindly, uh, to avoid a word that despotism, a word that re- appears repeatedly um, in this in 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 the advice literature, and to refrain. Essentially, it's interesting. I mean, because actually, let me step back in family law. In Russia, historians of Russian family law, particularly Bill Wagner in his wonderful book, um, Marriage and Property Law in Russia, talks about um, family law as reinforcing and reproducing um, the absolute power of the czar. So you have a a czar whose power stands above the law um, at the top, and in the family, you have a husband whose authority is similarly unlimited. And, and so so in the home, the, the thinking goes, children are are taught to, to be disciplined and to obey in preparation for their larger role in the society. What you see, rather surprisingly, in the prescriptive literature is a reining in of that arbitrary power um, on the personal level, not in law, where it remains absolute right to the end, uh, but in terms of the way that cultivated people are supposed to behave. So that, um, uh, so that a kind of re- retraction of the authority, not retraction, a curbing, a self-curbing, mind you, self-curbing of masculine power is supposed to take place. And I argue in the book, it becomes one aspect of a kind of civilized masculine ideal that evolves towards
1: the end of the 19th century. It's, it's actually interesting now that I think about it, there seems to be a correlation with that and the fact that you have a tsar, both Alexander III and Nicholas II, where the domestic sphere is actually more in public for them. I mean, they, they see themselves as family men. And it's interesting that there's a, there's a, I'm not saying that it's a direct or intentional, but there is a translation of this uh, in terms of what you're speaking about.
0: Well, it's interesting because, in fact, you don't, you, 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 there there is and there isn't. Um, Alexander, I mean, Nicholas I was also a family man. Um, And so, and and in fact, I mean, interestingly, um, although the chancellor is my main subject, the intervention in marriage actually begins in the reign of Nicholas I. Under the notorious third section, um, in which the third section becomes the, the the venue for the appeals of abused wives, mostly of the privileged classes, until the very end, um, and the occasional abandoned husband. Um, so, so you do have. It's true. You're right that the that the the czar and does sort of the, the the scenario to use Richard Wardman's terms the scenario of the czar does have its corollary in certain social processes. But under Alexander III, um, although it is true that prescriptive literature already begins to, to prune back, to use a, I'm not sure it's the right word, but anyway, to prune back the extremes of masculine authority, you don't really see a reflection of this in the chancery at all. It's really under, under Nicholas II, that you begin to see a, a genuine shift. And I, I actually don't know whether that order comes from the top, whether Nicholas II is simply a nicer guy or whether um, the, wh- whether he just cares less and chancellor officials have their head or whether a new generation of officials, far better educated, many with a legal education brings a very different sensibility to the
1: task at hand. Yeah, you, you do note that it, seemed, it gets more professionalized
0: it gets more professionalized and and, and it becomes it it, it, be, it begins to it, officials begin to partake although to a lesser degree of the changed ethos of domesticity that's increasingly pervading the educated
1: circles of society well in the interest of time i have two more questions for you the the first is about adultery and 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 the shifting attitudes towards immorality um, and in terms of adultery and the role adultery plays, because it plays a very interesting role in uh, separations. H- how, does, how does adultery work out? Because you actually have a formula, or at least you discern a formula to how uh, a woman could get granted separation from her husband depending on how each party works in, in adultery, <laughs> figures in adulterous uh, relationship.
0: Here again, we're talking mainly about the lower classes um and my my point is that it's it, in the reign of alexander the 2nd third um if a wife was uh, had, had ever engaged in adultery or was suspected of not suspected but had ever been found to engage in adultery her chance of getting a passport was nil if a man had engaged in adultery um the woman might get her passport if both parties had engaged in adultery she would not get a passport. Women's sexual transgressions weighed, carried enormous weight in the eyes of chancellery officials. Um, again, I think connected to the concern with social decorum that is there from the first and never ends, never goes away, um, so that men are supposed to control unruly women. However, um, as time passes... Um, the the room for maneuver uh, grows larger for women. So that, for example, um, if a woman picks up with a man after she leaves her husband and is in only that relationship, um, it's likely to count against her far less in 1902 than it would have in 1885. There, because that a certain degree of female sexual behavior. Becomes permissible under certain circumstances, and the interesting, um, the interesting way I trace this is through the word debauchery, uh, which is used in the early period quite a lot, and which which involves the kind of dis- dis- disturbance of the public sphere and of public dec- decorum in the later period. Uh, officials when they decided that a woman who had engaged in illicit sexual behavior nevertheless deserved a passport would say things like, well, yes, she did have an affair with so-and-so, but it lasted four years and it isn't the same as debauchery. So they would, they would, they would, they would, they would, would, what what I'm really, you know, what I'm really talking about here is a kind of expansion of the sphere in which individual privacy has, has freedom of action, you know, the the expansion of the the fear of individual private behavior, um, so that what, what, especially women could do, uh, that seemed very troubling 20 years earlier became less threatening and less, um, troubling 20 years later. And sex, of course, is the quintessential expression of that because, um, because it's one of the very few grounds. Divorce, adultery is one of the very, very few grounds for divorce. Um, and it's, it's, it's an accusation that almost every husband made against a wife who saw her own passport. Virtually to men, they would say. Of course I beat my wife. She was fooling around with another man. Um, my wife isn't a good person. She had an affair with so and so. So the men would try. So it was. It was the. It was the kind of the brush with which, if the tar stuck, um, a, a, a woman's chances were of obtaining of, of her own freedom were very, very
1: gravely reduced.
0: But those chances expanded um, as as time passed. I'm
1: not sure this is, but anyway, go on. Yeah. If we had more time, I'd love to talk about the, the intervention of, of the state in terms of surveillance of the private lives of people through these but that's a whole different subject I just wanted to mention it's because um, it, it's through I think it's throughout the book and it, it so it, it is it, it, as the private expands well so does it seems the state's kind of purview over it through well the it,
0: does it, no, it it no the state's no. You, do, do you want me not to do this because you're running out of time, or can I, can I make, a no, make, a, make a comment?
1: No, make a comment, because it's interesting. Um, it's one funny. of the
0: very interesting things about these cases is if the case seemed ambiguous, the, the state would often set up um, secret surveillance over the couple. They might be followed, um, their neighbors might be asked about them. People who they didn't name as witnesses might be queried about various aspects of their behavior. Their privacy would be completely destroyed. That's consistent throughout this period. That doesn't change, doesn't grow worse. But this, because this is an extra legal body, um, they had the, the secret police at their disposal, and they used them um, if they needed them to ascertain the real truth, as they often put it, about a case. So that kind of thing, people being followed, I mean just remarkable stuff. I mean, there was remarkable stuff. Um for example, there's one case I forget who it was, it doesn't even make it into the book, um, where where the marriage unraveled at a Dacha colony. And every the, the, the railroad people, the Dacha quality colony were queried, the workers on the railroad were queried, the neighbors were queried. I mean, all these people whom, whom the couple had never named as potential witnesses in their case, um, were consulted about what really went on. So privacy was violated routinely. Um, Nevertheless, although privacy was violated routinely, the realm of what was considered acceptable private behavior expanded.
1: Um, So we've talked about women, we've talked about wives, and we've talked about men and husbands. Uh, Lastly is... Are children. Um, uh, you you treat child custody, and, and in in your last chapter, and so how did the the state and the Russian um, this this system of adjudicating separations deal with custody disputes? Well,
0: the the, the, the chancery I think was was remarkably even-handed, um, and that's partly because um, it's in a position to ignore the law. Well. Well, it's it's partly because of the the way the law is is it, the way the law is written. Russian law is remarkably um, gender neutral when it comes to parenting. It obligates um, parents to provide for children, not fathers. It obligates parents, not mothers, to provide for the upbringing of children. Um, the laws that have actually affect parental responsibilities are are written in terms of parents not fathers or mothers so the law itself is remarkably gender neutral on the other hand um parental law is on the other hand um marital law gives the husband absolute power how this played out in the courts was mainly to privilege paternal custody till pretty close to the end whereas from the beginning the chancery was prone to award custody to women in cases where, initially, um, up until about 1855, 60, um, it seemed to them better for the moral upbringing of the child. And after, and increasingly in the 1870s and 80s, um, concerns about the well being of the child began to enter their rationale um so so they it, it, it's it 's remarkably well i wouldn 't it, it's it, it is more child centered than one would expect from such a paternalistic patriarchal body um and really what astonished it me was what astonished me is the Is the they would work out these elaborate child custody arrangements that sounded so much like what we see in divorce courts today. You know, wives get the child on weekends and three months in the summertime. The husband has the child so many days a week, Um, and they would they would they would work. They were very alert to um, the proper parenting of a child, and so and and by comparison with. i mean they were they were uh, well let me stop there
1: okay they just when, did they did they also restrict the movement of parents because of child custody so a, a a parent had to live within a certain distance between like say here in the united states you can't move to another state
0: no, no they didn't do that um they didn't do that um but um but if a husband i'm thinking of one particular case if a husband Took. I mean, there's one case where the husband went off with his children to his estate, essentially forcing the, his wife to go to the estate uh, in order to be with her children. And he then ill-treated her very badly while she was there. And the, the, um, the, the chancery's decision um, focused on how he had forced her presence and then insulted her in order for her to be the proper mother that she wanted to be. So they were very alert to that. They they did not control movements um in that in that way. They did not control movements in that way. Inter- you know what interestingly they also were not concerned ah, let me stop there. Let me just stop. They, you know, there was no effort to keep parents close to one another. Those things the parents had to work out for themselves.
1: Well, it's it's a it's a wonderful book, a very well-written book and and I think um not only your your ability to write, but I think your sources give you a good base to do that. Um, They're very lively and and, and have a lot of character in them. Um, So thank you very much to talking to me. Oh, you're welcome, John. I've been talking with Barbara Engel about her book, Breaking the Ties That Bound, The Politics of Marital Strife and Late Imperial Russia. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Gillery, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian he Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to NewBooksNetwork.com. Until next time, goodbye.